we, we have all experienced it. We have all experienced the expectation of paradise, haven't we? Only to be met by some unexpected troubles. Sarah and I did five years ago. We worked with Campus Outreach and we had just gotten finished with four grueling weeks down at the Summer Beach Project. We had our daughter Naomi with us. She was about a year old. We had worked hard, long, long days, staying up all types, all times of nights. It was time to go home. Sarah and I were so excited, ready for some rest, some relaxation, and just ready to just lounge around. We had already, we were so excited, we started planning what movies we were going to binge watch on Netflix, what what food we were going to eat, let's just say some Zaxby's was on there, some pizza, and Sarah's homemade cinnamon rolls. We were ready to go. We, we leave Myrtle Beach. It's about a six-hour drive back to Cullowee where we lived. We had crossed over North Carolina. Then we crossed into Cullowee. We were home. Paradise. At least for the next week or so. And then as we were getting close to our house, we looked back and all I remember is saying, saying, Chris, she's having a seizure. And I look back and I vividly remember my daughter having what has been told to me a febrile seizure. At that time, I had no idea what it was. We go from heading to paradise Two, we are in the midst of pain, trouble. It truly was trouble in paradise for us. Is this, is this how the Israelites may have felt once they entered the land? They entered the land. They conquered the land. They divided the land. And they are now occupying it. And they are on the brink of civil war. They are on the brink of civil war unless they do what God has called them to do, unless they respond to his faithfulness like he called them to respond. But the better question you need to ask tonight is, well, what are you to do after you experience God's faithfulness? God had worked miracles for them. They experienced his faithfulness. What are they to do? That's an important question. But the more important question now is, what are you to do when you've experienced God's faithfulness? Because the reality is everybody in this room has experienced God's faithfulness. Everybody. Everybody has experienced that feeling of being uh, drawn into God's presence, being saved from sin being pulled up out of a bad situation you were in. God, meeting your daily needs. We have all experienced it. The question we have to ask now is, well, how are you responding when you experience his faithfulness? We are all able to say, as uh, the author says in Joshua 21, not one word, not one word that God has made has failed. So as we approach Joshua 22, 
what one commentator says is this. Joshua 22 is like the therefore. I heard my man say, it's the uh-oh, it's the therefore of Romans 12. So the first 21 chapters of Joshua, we see God's mercy, God's faithfulness. And Joshua 22 is the therefore in, in narrative form. So let us read Joshua 22. And we're actually going to start in, uh, at the end of chapter 21. And then we're going to go all the way because we believe God's word is holy and inerrant. And it speaks even God blesses just the reading of his word. And we're going to read the whole chapter. And then we're going to jump right in. But before we do that, let me pray. Father, thank you so much. We need you this very hour. Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness to us and your willingness to lay your life down on behalf of your people. Spirit, open our eyes, enliven our hearts, teach us tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before I read these verses, I want to give you two perspectives as we're reading. So the book of Joshua is divided into four parts. And the first part is they're crossing over. Then they're, the second part, they're conquering. The third part, they're dividing. And now it's time for them to respond. They're, in, they're occupying the land. How are they going to respond? As I read, I want you to be asking that question. How is Israel responding? And underneath that question, asking, well, how should I be responding? Ask that question while we read the text. Second perspective I want you to have is, I know there can be this idea that Old Testament narrative, especially portions like this, can be boring. But I, what I want to do, this is, I don't know if any of you like soap operas. I don't know if any of you like drama. I don't know if any of you like suspense. If you do, this chapter is chalk full of it. So read with an eye of suspense. Read with an eye of drama because it is laced throughout. Let's read Joshua 21 through the end of 22. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their forefathers, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their forefathers. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord handed all their enemies over to them. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to the house of Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. Then Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, you have done all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, and you have obeyed me in everything I commanded. For a long time now, to this very day, you have not deserted your brothers, but you have carried out the mission the Lord your God gave you. Now that the Lord your God has given your brothers rest as he had promised, return to your homes in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. But... Be very careful to keep the commandment in the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. To love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to obey his commands, to hold fast to him, to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. 
Then Joshua blessed them, sent them away, and they went to their homes, to the half-tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given the land in Bashan, and to the other half of the tribe, Joshua gave land on the west side of the Jordan with their brothers. When Joshua sent them home, he blessed them, saying, Return to your homes with your great wealth, with large herds of livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and a great quantity of clothing, and divide with your brothers the plunder from your enemies. So, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh left the Israelites at Shiloh in Canaan to return to Gilead, their own land, which they had acquired in accordance with the command of the Lord through Moses. When they came to Gileath, near the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. And when the Israelites heard this, that they had built the altar on the border of Canaan in Gilead, near the Jordan on the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. So the Israelites sent Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest to the land of Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. With him, they sent ten of the chief men, one from each tribe of Israel, each the head of family division among the Israelite clan. When they went to Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, the whole assembly of the Lord says, how could you break faith with the Lord, the God of Israel, like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? Was not the sin of Peor enough for us? Up to this very day, we have not cleansed ourselves from that sin, even though a plague fell on the community of the Lord. And are you now turning away from the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he will be angry with the whole community of Israel. If the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and share the land with us. But do not do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves, other than the altar of the Lord our God. When Achan, son of Zerah, acted unfaithfully regarding the devoted things, did not wrath come upon the whole community of Israel? He was not the only one who died for his sin. Then Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh replied to the heads of the clans of Israel, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows. And let Israel know, if this has been in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, do not spare us this day. If we have built our own altar to turn away from the Lord and to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings or to sacrifice fellowship offerings on it, may the Lord himself call us to account. No, we did it for fear that someday your descendants might say to ours, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you Reubenites and Gadites. You have no share in the Lord. So your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. That is why we said, let us get ready and build an altar. On the contrary, it is to be a witness between us and you 
in the generations that follow that we will worship the Lord at his sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and fellowship offerings. Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. And we said, if they ever say this to us or to our descendants, we will answer, look at the replica. Look at it of the Lord's altar, which our fathers built, not for burnt offerings and sacrifices, but as a witness between us and you. Far be it from us to rebel against the Lord and to turn away from him today by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings, and sacrifices, other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. When Phinehas, the priest, and the leaders of the community, the heads of the clans of the Israelites, heard what the Reuben, uh, what Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh had to say, they were pleased. And Phinehas said, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, said to Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is with us because you have not acted unfaithfully toward the Lord in this matter. Now you have rescued the Israelites from the Lord's hand. Then Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, and the leaders returned to Canaan from their meeting with the Reubenites and Gadites in Gilead and reported to the Israelites. They were glad to hear the report and praised God. And they talked no more about going to war against them to devastate the country where the Reubenites and the Gadites live. And the Reubenites and the Gadites gave the altar this name, a witness between us that the Lord is God. Amen to the reading of God's word. Can I get something to drink after that? That was long. All right, let's jump right in. When Christians experience God's faithfulness, we are called to respond by pursuing loyalty to God and unity with the family of God. When Christians, when we who bear the name of Christ experience faithfulness, big ones, small ones, when we experience that faithfulness, we are to respond in loyalty to God and with unity with the family of God. But what is this loyalty? When I say loyalty, what, what does that mean? When I say unity, what does that mean? Everybody in this room probably has some idea what loyalty is, what unity is. But this text before us not only tells us that we as God's people are to respond in loyalty, we are to respond in unity, but it tells us exactly what do we mean when we say loyalty? What is unity? So let's look at this first point. Christians should respond to God's faithfulness by pursuing loyalty. And we can say covenant loyalty. I believe this text gives at least three aspects of loyalty that helps us understand what the author meant when he says pursue this. The first thing about loyalty that we learn from this text is that covenant loyalty must always always be continual. Look at the first five verses of chapter 22. Joshua commended the people for their faithfulness. He patted them on the back. He said, good job. This whole time you were faithful to do what God asked you to do through his servant Moses. You were obedient to what I had to say, mainly in being here fighting with and for your brothers. You obeyed us, pat on the, good job. 
he said. But he follows that commendation up with a command, and he says, be very careful. Be very careful to keep the commandment in the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. Joshua was not satisfied with past obedience. If there was anybody you could assume would continue in obedience, it would be people who just fought on behalf of God's people willingly. Oh, I don't have to tell, I don't have to challenge them. No, no, no. But no, he doesn't do that. Joshua says, be very careful. Be very careful to keep the commandment. This shows us that Joshua was aware that past obedience does not negate the call to present or future obedience. Just because Israel, uh, the Eastern tribes, just because you did it in the past, I'm still calling you to be careful both in the present and in the future. The Eastern tribes were not called to just be loyal for a season, just be loyal while we fight for this land. No, 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 no. Once you've occupied it and once you go home, you continue that obedience. So loyalty to God is to be continual. The second thing we learn about loyalty is that it's a always, always to be comprehensive. Also in verse 5, we see this commandment. He says, be very careful to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to obey his commands, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. The loyalty that they were to respond with was a holistic loyalty, a comprehensive, a full orb, full body, mind, body, and soul loyalty to God. Joshua was not just satisfied with hands that obeyed and hearts that were dead. He was not satisfied with heart that were aflame, but hands that wouldn't get wouldn't do what God called them to do. He wanted everything. He wanted them to love God with everything that they had, every fiber of their being. So loyalty is not only supposed to be continual, loyalty is supposed to be comprehensive, taken from the top of your head to the crown of your feet, Eastern tribes. This is what loyalty looks like. But then we also see in this story that loyalty is, is sometimes, so where it's always, it is always continual, it's always comprehensive, sometimes loyalty is confrontational. Now, I'm going to slide this in here. What I really mean is filled with holy discontentment, but I had to use confrontational because, you know, as a PCA, you've got to use alliteration. Like, you've got to say, C, C, C. I was like, okay. But what I mean by sometimes confrontational is loyalty is filled with holy discontentment. We see this in Joshua in the ninth verse all the way to the 20th. This is the story. Joshua told him, you've done your deed. Go home, rest, relax, enjoy, obey. They cross over, before they cross over, they say they hear that they have built some altar. Now, 
in the history of redemption, we know that in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, you don't set up altars to worship anywhere except where God has told us to. What is this blatant, what did he say, breach of faith? What is this that is ringing in our ears that you are over here building an altar? You just left. What you doing? Why are you breaking faith with the God who has just been faithful to us? This is what the Western tribe is thinking when they catch wind that the Eastern tribe are building some altar. And guess what they do? As good Presbyterians do, they send a committee <laughs> to review and to report. <laughs> they send a committee. Go tell me what's going down over here. So Phineas, in case you don't remember, he was zealous for God's holiness. They sent him, and he sent 10 other people with him, leaders of tribes, and they confronted the eastern tribes and said, what is this that you are doing? And he not only uh, confronts them, but he calls them to repentance. This, this full-orbed picture, both what is, we see in the eastern tribes and both what we see in the western tribe, is a picture of covenant loyalty. It is a call to continual loyalty, a call to a comprehensive loyalty. It's a call to a loyalty that is willing to confront because it's filled with holy discontentment. This is what God's people, how God's people are to respond when they experience God's faithfulness. So two points of application for us tonight. August 8th, first, as I sat here and said, everybody in this room has experienced God's faithfulness some way. Bill got paid that you weren't expecting to. Child got in somewhere that you weren't expecting. You look into your cabinet and you see it filled with food. We all have experienced it. Someone comes to faith that you just weren't expecting. We've all experienced it. The response that we must have is a continual pursuit for a continual, comprehensive, and a confrontational loyalty to God. How many of us can say, yesterday I was fighting hard. I fought that indwelling sin in me. And yesterday I let my guard, or the next day I let my guard down, and I fell to that same sin that I fought. What I'm calling you and beckoning you to do is to fight and to fight for loyalty to God continually with all your heart, with all your soul. But there's a second application that we can't miss. We who are now Christians, we are freed to rest in Jesus because he has done that loyalty. He has done that on our behalf. As Christians who have the full and the whole counsel of God, we know the history of redemption. We know what happens after the book of Joshua. So God said, you know, love me, love me, Eastern tribe. And this story ends peaceably. But we know two chapters after Joshua, the first chapter into Judges, they spiral downward. That what... God's people are called to, in and of themselves, they cannot do it. 
But listen to what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did for himself. As Christians who have trusted in Christ, we really enter into God's rest. Where for the Israelites, it was just a temporary rest. For us, it is a real eternal rest that starts right now. When we enter Jesus' rest, that means although we are pursuing loyalty, at the same time, we can cease from our spiritual strivings. We can cease from our performance. We can cease from wondering, does God love me? We can cease from all this doing. We can cease from wondering if we measure up. We can cease. We can rest because of Christ. Because Christ has kept the covenant for us. He has been loyal to God on our behalf. And don't get me wrong, it is a beautiful thing to talk about the life and the death of Christ. That is profound. But we only miss an half of what he did when we talk about him dying for us. He also lived for us. And that perfect life is given to us. And that high bar that has been set of loyalty is not dropped, but we know we can pursue it wholeheartedly because we already won. It's already been fulfilled in Christ. So what I want to challenge you tonight is both strive for covenant loyalty, but rest that you have already been made loyal in Christ. The second way, this is the last point, the second way we are to respond, so not only are we supposed to respond to God's faithfulness by pursuing covenant loyalty, now we are to respond by pursuing unity with God's people. Question I want to ask is, what does this text teach about the dynamics of covenant unity, covenant solidarity? What does it teach? I think it teaches three things, probably more, but I just want to put these three in front of you. First, this text teaches us that covenant unity is not automatic. This account in history makes it painfully clear that unity and solidarity is not something that just falls into place. How many times have you, how many times, people might not have said that, but you assume that unity just, I've become a Christian, I'm a part of a church, and unity exists. But if you weren't sure, this last year made it very clear that unity is not automatic. But not only when we look around do we see that unity is not automatic, this text makes it abundantly clear. Unity within the family of God is not automatic. Look at this. The eastern tribes and the western tribes were descendants of Abraham. There was some lineage there. The eastern tribe and the western tribe fought years together. Yet, the eastern tribe still was filled with distrust and disunity for the western tribe. They still didn't trust him. Look, 
They were at Shiloh, and when they departed, they took off back to cross the Jordan. But before they crossed the Jordan, they built this large, conspicuous altar. And what I mean is, you could see it no matter where you sat, no matter where you walked, you could see that altar. Brazen. If I was a Western child, it's like, that's just brazen sin right there. I mean, the altar is huge. You can't miss it. And then when they sent the committee to go check in on the Eastern tribe, this is what the Eastern tribe said. We built this not to offer sacrifices. No, 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 no. We're not offering any kind of sacrifice. None of them grain offerings. None of the, no kind of offering are we offering for that altar. We built it because we feared that someday you your descendants might say to ours, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? You're on that side of the Jordan. You ain't on this side of the Jordan. This is God's land. You're over there. The Eastern tribe was afraid. They were worried about their lineage. So they were like, let us build a replica. Let us build this. The Western tribe never said this. But this is what the Eastern tribe assumed. Now, this should be mind-blowing. If we're following the story, if we're following this account of history, this is mind-blowing. The, West, the, the Eastern tribe, look at how much they laid aside. They delayed getting their land. Yes, it was commanded to them, but they paused on getting their land. They left their families. They risked their lives. They sacrificed their bodies all so that the Western tribe might get a little something land, a little something, something, you know what I mean? They wanted them to enter that rest, and they did it with them. And still, after they had conquered, they still were not sure. This unit or unity is not guaranteed. It is not automatic. Even after all of this, there still wasn't that certainty. So listen, unity is not automatic. But also, unity is grounded in loyalty to God. There is no dichotomy between loyalty to God and unity with the people of God. Loyalty without unity is sacrilegious, but unity without loyalty is superficial. Both exist together. To say that you pursue loyalty with God without pursuing loyalty with God's family that is inconsistent. To say I'm pursuing unity with God's people, but not loyalty to God, that is vanity. They work together. When you pursue one, you must pursue the other. Look what Joshua says in the third verse. For a long, long time now, to this very day, you have not deserted your brothers, but have carried out the mission the Lord your God gave you. This embodies the great commandment. This embodies loving thy God and loving thy neighbor. To pursue the mission of God for them was to not desert their brother. One in the same. So we've learned about unity that is not automatic. We learn that it is grounded in loyalty to God. And lastly, we learn that unity is maintained in the confession that the Lord is God, in the New Testament confession that Jesus is Lord. That is how unity is maintained. 
the adhesive that is strong enough to bind people together, the Eastern and Western tribe, it was not their lineage. It was not their past war efforts. It was the common theme, the common truth that the Lord is God. Look, after they were inve investigated, interrogated uh, by these people, they told them, look, this is why we built it. They explained themselves. They said, no, 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 we're not trying to, we're not trying to become disloyal or rebellious. We want to just make sure covenant solidarity is kept. That's why we're doing this. Phineas heard that and he was like, okay, that's a good word there. It was so good that that big conspicuous altar, it got left right there. They didn't tear it down. They didn't even, they didn't tear it down. They went so far as to name it. And you know what they named it? A witness between us and the Lord, that the Lord is God. This was to remind them when they saw it and they looked at them, they said, your God is my God. My God is your God. Therefore, we are the people of God. Unity is kept on the confession that the Lord is God. Last two points of application. First, if, if unity is to be pursued, the question we have to ask is how do you pursue it? In this story, I would challenge you, go back and look at it. It tells you ways in which you are to pursue unity. But what I wanna do is I wanna use the example of a marriage. The reason why I want to do this is because one, we are going through that in our morning service. We're talking about marriage. But two, this is a perfect picture of covenant unity. It is a covenant between a man and a woman. Now, in the marriage, it is a covenant bond made, and the man and the woman, as Christians, both desire to honor the Lord. They want to honor the Lord in their marriage. They want to honor him at work, in their home. If they were to have kids, they want to honor how they raise their kids. Now, they want to honor how they raise their kids. That is a gospel aim. But they might differ in how to pursue that, in how to live that out. How one honors God in parenting might look different. What are they to do? Is that grounds for disunity? No. They both have the same ambition. We see this in the story. They both had a, des a desire for covenant loyalty. And husband and wife both have a desire to honor God in their parenting. So what are they supposed to do? I would say this difference is not a ground for disunity, but it is an opportunity for more covenant loyalty. It is an opportunity for more covenant loyalty. And this is what be my suggestion as you pursue covenant loyalty when I use the example of a marriage. First, you are to remind yourself that we stand on the same truth that Yahweh is God, that Jesus is Lord. But then we are to recognize, we are to recognize that our differences aren't differences on truth, but differences simply on the application of those truths. Then we are to seek, and I'm giving very practical advice here, seek to understand before seeking to be understood. Seek to understand. You can see that in the story. Then we are to pray, I would say pray for the Spirit to help, and lastly, wait 
to see how the spirit guides. This is just one example, but I think this covers all different types of situations, whether it's politics, COVID, whatever it is where there's disagreement, what would it look like to remind yourself that you are standing on the truth that God is God? What does it look like to say, you know, we may differ here, but the Lord is God and I want to seek to understand you before I am understood. And the last thing is this. We who are God's people, Jesus has unified us in himself. But more importantly, Jesus himself is praying unity for us. In John 17, he prays that we are one. So as we can pursue unity, knowing that God the Father, so no matter all these different reasons we may be disunified, God himself in the person of Christ is praying for us that we would be unified. So as we pursue covenant unity, as we pursue that, we can do it boldly knowing that Jesus himself is praying for us, praying for this community, praying for his church that they might be one. And in that confidence, we can pursue covenant unity more and more and more. I recently read an article about how people spend their time. In the article, it says this, we all have the same 24 hours in a day. We all have the same 24 hours in a day, but we don't spend them the same way. Some prioritize family, some prioritize household chores, while others cherishes a good night's rest. The list of activities goes on and on. Education, how do people spend their time? As God's people, we have to decide and we have to say, I prioritize covenant loyalty. I prioritize covenant unity with God's family. These must be our top priority. In doing this, we truly will be able to prevent trouble in paradise. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you that you are so faithful to us. I pray, King Jesus, that you would allow us to be fixated, fixated on covenant loyalty to you and fixated on seeking unity, seeking unity with your family. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.